0: Now, here's your host, Leanne Meyer.
1: Welcome back. I really want to especially thank all of you. Uh, There are about 110,000 listeners out there in 70 plus countries, and that is incredibly important, especially today. I wanted to just um, uh, encourage each of you to see what you can do in this crisis that we're facing. So COVID-19 is officially a pandemic, and I'm starting on a serious note because this is an international nursing program listened to by so many different people. Uh, Never has the knowledge, skills, innovation, compassion, and optimism of nurses been needed on such a large scale. Many people are in panic. What stops panic? a sense of control and a sense of of correct knowledge. So I want all providers listening to this show to think deeply about what you personally and safely can do to help. If you are currently working in your field, do that to the best of your ability. If you are not currently working, say a student, um, a provider seeking a job, retired or on leave, and if you are healthy, could you possibly help in some way uh, uh, with this crisis by contacting uh, people that would know how you could help? So um, I just wanted to, uh, you know, say first to especially do no harm. So uh, making sure that um, we know or we've been trained to know uh, what is going to be the most effective things to do and helpful. So don't do anything that you're not sure of or if you're not healthy, et cetera. But some things I was thinking of that you might be able to do would be to find out the emergency numbers in your your, um, area your state, province, country uh, for the COVID-19. And then ask whoever is there, is there something that they need help with and is that something that you could do? Um, Contact your friends and neighbors. I'm sure you're already doing that. Who's okay? Who needs some help? And is there something that you can do um, Uh, If you can't do the help yourself, then is there somebody else that you could contact uh, through your resources or through the emergency numbers? Uh, If you don't know phone numbers or emails, and again, you are healthy, can you uh, check in your neighborhood? If there's apartments, again, don't go in, but maybe through intercoms, just checking. Are you okay? Do you need any help? do you have uh, access to the numbers if you did need some help Um, sometimes it might even be just something like a phone number that somebody that they could call and talk to if they were feeling um, nervous so for homes of course you don't want to go in again you want to maintain uh, some distance from the outside and again you're just talking uh, to people are they okay do they have resources if not is there something that you can uh, help with so, um, you know, again, giving them a buddy phone number, some current information, if you are, are clear or are sure that the information you have is correct, uh, encouraging the individual to stay busy, to laugh, to get to know uh, their family more. Um, if, they're, if their family is with them, play games, uh, do whatever it is that they can do to kind of uh, lighten the situation. sometimes we listen closely to the radio and we get very, very um, concerned. So um, from health uh, from uh, kind of a mental health standpoint, uh, spread positivity yourself, smile. A lot of times, even, even as we're delivering messages over the phone, if we are smiling, that smile can come through. Um, encourage people to be in, uh, out in nature. That's one place where as long as there aren't people there, you should be okay, so involve yourself in nature. Soak it in, enjoy it. Um, again, games, laughing, uh, having sincere conversations with friends and, and other people. Tell people you love that you do. Uh, So many times we don't do that, and then at a time like this, um, it it just is something we not necessarily think of. Use your imagination, but again, as a a caregiver and knowing the seriousness of the situation, make sure that you're you're staying within the realm of what you know to be true and that is um, something you feel comfortable doing. So the five things I've been hearing here from the CDC of things to do is to wash your hands often, use your elbow to cough into, um, acknowledging people instead of a handshake or a hug, maybe an elbow bump. Uh, don't touch your face as much as you can. Keep uh, at least three feet to six feet away from people around you. And if you feel sick, stay home. So basics, just kind of basics. Um, from the mental health issues, it just so happens that one of my guests is a psychologist, uh, and I would like to bring her in to see if she has any suggestions for this message here specifically. So um, my guest is Mary uh, Feeton, and uh, she is a... Um, uh, she is a certified, board-certified clinical psychologist and a Navy commander. So, Mary, what would you add to what I mentioned for people about staying upbeat?
2: Everything you said, it's just really, really important. Um, I, the only thing I would add is that people don't start to pathologize, especially as medical providers, normal responses to stress. People are very, very afraid Um, They're going to have cabin fever. They're going to be irritable because of being confined at home with the same people over and over. They may um, have things that they had access to before, um, uh, like alcohol, and they have those things run out um, and then um, become even more irritable. So um, it's just really important not to pathologize that, to, to tell people those are normal responses. You do not need a doctor for those responses. They are completely and totally normal. Um, In my uh, circle, I'm already seeing um, articles showing up claiming that the coronavirus is going to cause or exacerbate mental illness or the sequestering of people is going to cause or exacerbate mental illness. Um, And this is just a huge opportunity for big pharma. They are literally already circling the wagon so that they won't miss this financial opportunity um, and the, the nursing community, all of the medical community, can really do people a favor by instead of referring people into, um, you know, into the doctor because of a, this mental illness that is caused by the coronavirus, instead to say, hey, your response is completely normal. You know, how else are you going to feel under these circumstances? Um, so normalize instead of pathologize is, is I think, the message.
1: Yeah, along with that, excuse me, I think um, so many times we forget that we have all been through crises. We have all dealt with many, many things along the way. We have um, uh, resilience within ourselves, and we can look for what is that resilience? What did I use before? What can I use again? And it's just so important that we do that because it's easy to just get kind of dragged into all of the crisis talk about it um, just really think about what can we uh, bring up for ourselves and what can we bring up and help for the people around us also but a lot of it is is look at the optimistic part of it Uh, well over 80 percent of people will either not be impacted at all or be lightly touched if they do get the virus Um, and the other people that will have a more serious um, uh, effect with it, uh, is gonna be people who have underlying problems. But again, it comes right back to just those common sense things. Keep your distance, um, you know, wash your hands carefully. And those are all things that we know. So that's my message. I'm just so grateful to be able to share this with such a large audience at this time. So thank you. We're gonna go on with uh, the show that we had planned for today. And um, the title of that is um, uh, basically that, um, (laughs) I'm losing my place in line here. Uh, So what we had talked about uh, doing today was we wanted to talk about um, mental health or or, um, increasing suicide rates for returning vets after they have had treatment in mental health um, care. And my two guests that I have today, I already talked a little bit about uh, Mary, Dr. Mary Featon, and um, Angelo Peacock is my other um, guest. And um, this show is particularly interesting and important to me um, as somebody who has already experienced uh, some some really deep uh, sadness and having times when I was uh, perhaps suicidal. And I was so fortunate to be able to receive care that was helpful to me, uh, in that it was respectful communication and interaction, acknowledging that I had uh, resources and helping me to find and and, and um, uh, uh, deepen those resources. Um, I also had access to nature to be able to that was really important to me to be able to go and walk in nature. And, um, So those are kind of some of the things that really helped me move forward. Also people helped me deal with the grief that I was dealing with and helped me understand that I could move through that and I would not be devastated by that that grief um, by actively working with it. So um, one of the things that I've noticed, uh, and I had been worried about this for a couple of years already before I talked to Angela and Dr. Featon. was uh, friends and relatives as I would go to mental health institutions what I would see is these beautiful facilities but when I'd walk in the sense that I had or how it felt to me was like the old movies about madhouses, where people were wandering in circles they were sitting and rocking crying out or in a fog probably not able to carry on a conversation and all of them apparently were deeply medicated Um, certainly These issues uh, go well beyond the military. And so, uh, but my guests today are going to be talking more specifically about the military. So uh, let's see, I think we can just go ahead and go into this. So Angela, uh, Angela Peacock is an MSW. She's a former um, U.S. Army sergeant. Uh, Angela, would you um, say hello and tell us a little bit about your military background and then how you got into the work you're doing now? Hi, thank you so much for having us.
3: Um, So my name is Angela. I served almost seven years in the U.S. Army with one deployment to Iraq. And while I was in Iraq, I lost a lot of weight very quickly. I began began having, like, nosebleeds, fainting spells, uh, gastrointestinal problems, fevers, blood pressure spikes, all kinds of scary symptoms that I really didn't know how to handle. And then at the same time, I was driving convoys around Baghdad, you know, afraid for my life from, you know, small arms fire or RPGs or bombs going off. So there's a lot of stress and environmental factors and sickness, and that all led up to me getting a diagnosis of post-traumatic stress disorder. And um, so I was medically evacuated out of Iraq after six months. And the following day, our convoy was hit, so I got to see one of my soldiers come back wounded. And I talked to him after surgery, and um, I just had reached that capacity of being able to handle so many conflicting emotions at the same time and a lot of fear and a lot of sadness and being taken away from my unit in the middle of a very important mission and all those things compounded. And I just didn't really know what to do with that. And so I told my soldier like okay I can't hear the story anymore I have to go and I walked down the hallway and I saw a sign for psychiatry and that's where I went because that's where I was told that you go when you need help but the help that I received came in the form of multiple medications so between like 2004 and 2006 it went from 1 to 18 at the same time wow. and I just com- completely lost myself you know, I got a whole bunch more diagnoses labeled on top of what I was already experiencing, and then it was a medication for this side effect and medication for that effect, and headaches and migraines and pain all over my body. I mean, I was just a mess. Um, I was ultimately medically retired from the army, so I lost my career because of this. I lost mm-hmm. my marriage. I experienced homelessness. I couldn't even like do my bills by myself, and all of that was mistaken for mental illness.
1: Mm-hmm. So.
3: I continue to just be told, like, you'll never go to school, you'll never have a relationship, you know, the reason that you you're didn't get along with your husband is because of your trauma, and so all of that really has completely, I mean, like, side- sidetracked my life for like 13 years. So I was on the medication, all different kinds. I tried everything they told me to do. I went to all kinds of therapy. I saw social workers, psychologists, you know, I did holistic things. I did equine therapy, EMDR, all kind, everything that I could possibly do to try to feel better, I did. But no one ever said the meds could be making you worse or keeping this chronic or keeping you not functional. So basically, like in 2006, I met a psychiatrist who said, I'm a psychiatrist who doesn't believe in psychiatry. We need to get you off some of this meds, some of these meds. So I began like a tapering process that was pretty slow, and I don't really think I even consciously knew that I would ultimately come off of everything. I was just trying to take less. So, I mean, it took me 10 years from 2006 to 2016 to taper off, you know, a harm reduction approach to slowly, like, pull my life back together. I started going back to school. I got a service dog that really helped me with that. Um, and then I ultimately got off of everything, and the last medication almost killed me. It was a benzodiazepine called mirazepam. Um mm-hmm. I got... In, intensely suicidal, like overnight. I could not understand why do I want to kill myself because I'm in school. I'm, I want to graduate from college. Like I was really looking forward, but I had these like incredible thoughts and um, just like, I felt like I was being haunted. So mm-hmm. I went to the doctor and they obliged and took me off the medication overnight, cold turkey, which health providers are doing all over this country. And it's something that nurses should be really aware of that you just, you can't have a person on a medication for six years and then stop it overnight. Like we know that mm-hmm. if you do that with a beta blocker, a person could have a heart attack. So I don't understand right. why, you know, it's, it's like, Oh, a psych med, you can just stop it overnight. No, you cannot. So basically um that medication almost killed me. I was I couldn't, I had to reteach myself how to read. I didn't walk. I couldn't speak for like four months. I barely left my house. It was incre- It like literally obliterated my entire nervous system. Um But I stayed in school to try to keep me in reality because I felt like I can't even tell my provider what is going on because they will put me on more medication and they'll give me another label. So I just, I just fought for my survival and I'm, I'm four years off of all medication now. Um, I did have a severe withdrawal reaction. Not everybody has a severe withdrawal, but I definitely did. Um, and now I'm in a film called Medicating Normal, which is about the impacts of medication and treatment on civilians and veterans and just the whole notion of, like, you're mentally ill and you're going to have to take medication for the rest of your life. And these diagnoses are real medical entities. So the film just kind of goes into all these um complex subjects and follows five characters as we navigate who am I underneath the medication, who am I when I come off, what do I believe about my own symptoms, and things like that. So right now I'm just traveling the country, but we're kind of on, po- on on pause because of the coronavirus, but we're just trying to talk about these really important discussions. You know, if the medications work so great, why is our suicide rate continue to climb? Um, you know why are disability rates so high? If all these treatments are so wonderful,
1: right? So that's, exactly.
3: That's a short summary.
1: Yeah. I want to. Th- congratulate you for the brave work that you are doing. Um, it's what I call hard work, and so many times when I say it, people don't understand what I'm talking about, but this is what it's about, is that hard work of really coming to the, basically the core of yourself and finding what are my strengths that I can work from and and finding those people that can be good resources. So congratulations.
3: Thank you. And I forgot to say that. I mean, I even proved them wrong, and I graduated with my MSW from uh, Washington University in St. Louis with a 4.0 GPA Uh,
1: on the inside. (laughs) That was the next thing I was going to mention because I wanted to be sure that got in there. So thank you and congratulations. Wow, you you are an inspiration. So, Dr. Mary Fetan, can you um, uh, do the same thing, give just a, a brief bio of your background and then how you got into this type of work, what it is and what you're doing?
2: Sure. Um, so I'm a board-certified clinical psychologist, and I served on active duty uh, for 10 years, uh, transferred to the Reserves, um, and have done 12 more years. So um, 22 years total in the Navy, um, and then I have a private practice, and I run a program called Warfighter Advance. Um, and um, I've done two deployments in, in uh, support of the current conflicts, um, and also, I added it up a couple weeks ago. I've actually spent um, a, a total of about four years away from my family uh, um, on various, uh, when you add all the Navy service up. So um, I have a lot of experience in reintegration and coming back after extended periods of time, um, which I actually think is more um, valuable in my work than uh, my degree is. Um, hmm. So I do a lot of work with people in um, high-risk occupations, police, firefighters, EMS, um, and what I am the most proud of is that the clients that I work with um, stay in their occupations and um, go back to work um, and continue to work and assist their peers become what we call in the military force multipliers Um, instead of what typically happens when someone is referred to the, what I call the psychiatric pipeline, which is that they ultimately get more and more labels, as Angela did, more and more diagnoses, more and more drugs, and eventually can't work, or their, um, even their employers don't want them there because of the medication. So um, the, the last thing I want to say is that um, I actually met um, Angela Peacock and another character um named David Cope, uh, because they came through the program Warfighter Advance, and we were just absolutely honored to have them there and to have the film crew there. And so um, a little piece of the film, a very small piece of the film, um, shows uh, them passing through our program and um, shows what we are trying to do to uh, impact warfighters who have found themselves uh, stuck in this psychiatric pipeline. Uh,
1: Dr. Fiedzin, I'd really like you to go on, or maybe let's go to Angela first. Angela, tell us about that um, uh, your experience within the Warrior um, uh, Group that that <clears throat> Dr. Fiedzin is talking about.
3: He has an excellent program in Maryland, and it, I think it's the only program in the country that's thinking critically about, you know, this narrative that veterans are broken, that we are somehow, you know. The one thing that I taught, I just should just say what she taught me that I just will always think about is like you're in Iraq, you're in Germany, wherever you are, overseas, you're even stateside, and you're this like top soldier, you know, you're a warfighter is what she calls it. You know, we're extremely skilled. We have hundreds of thousand dollars worth of training. We're at the top, you know, the pinnacle of our lives in this very exciting career, you know, helping people all over the country and the world. And then you get on an airplane, you come home from wherever that is, and all of a sudden you have this mental illness. Like, it just doesn't even make sense. Like, even looking back on my own history, the reaction that I had to war was actually a normal reaction Mm-hmm. So I should not have been medicated and labeled, put on disability, and given retirement, you know, like, that made me question even, like, the tiny beliefs about myself, like, going from, like, super soldier to, you know, a mental patient on disability overnight. Like, it just doesn't make sense. And um so I just, I love her program because she thinks she helps warriors think critically about the labels they've been given, how those labels come about. You know, what? what is their goals for their own life? What do they want out of their own life besides the narrative that we're broken and we're just going to be like this for the rest of our lives and we just kind of get a paycheck and go home and we're just nothing, you know? So that's mine in a nutshell how great I think her program is.
1: And it's so common sense that it's, um, I don't know, it just makes – me wonder why more people aren't doing this. Mary, tell more about uh, what the program is, how you got it started, uh, what were some of your early results, those sorts of things.
2: So the, the, the program um, from the beginning has been um, an effort of uh, a group of warfighters who all kind of understand that um, what we would say, psychiatry does not have a dog in this fight, so, and the fight is that you know is to reintegrate, to come home, and to somehow figure out how to be normal um, or feel normal after you've been to war. Um, so, and the, the bottom line is that this has been made into a psychiatric problem, but it isn't a psychiatric problem; it's a human problem. And so, we we set up this program um, largely to stop the funerals um, from occurring because so many people who come back and are put into that psychiatric pipeline end up harmed or dead, um, and and we started it um, as a mentoring type of a program, so it's warfighter to warfighter, um, and we don't have mental health professionals um, running around, you know, doing counseling and making recommendations. We have warfighters who are farther along on the road um, showing the warfighters who are not so far down that road the way. Um, One of the things we do at the program, which I think is incredibly powerful, and I think this is what um, Angie was referring to, is that we remediate the informed consent that um, is required for psychiatric treatment. And and people do not get informed consent at all. If they do, um, they sign a paper on the way into the appointment that says they were explained a few things, Um, but that's not informed consent. And... So we spend, uh, we have a six-hour lecture that's two hours a day over three days where we remediate every single aspect of this. So we remediate the DSM, the Diagnostic and Statistics Manual, so that people understand that there are no real illnesses in there. Um, We remediate the uh, medications themselves so that people understand why they cannot get the results they believe they're going to get. Um, And we remediate the things they should have been told um, and are now finding out. Um, Sadly, like if you take your child to a psychiatrist when they're 10 um, and they get medicated, um, all sorts of career opportunities like joining the military are now closed to them, and no one told the parents that. Um, So we remediate all of this stuff just absolutely down to the molecular level why this cannot work for you. Um, and military members are very, very smart people and they get it. And after they get done being angry, um, which we help them with during the week, which is normal, um, they put their lives on a different path, you know, because, um, they don't, you know, they're not looking for easy answers. They're looking for the answer.
1: And the answer for them. So, Do you find that it's a very individual process or does it seem to follow a similar pattern with each of the warriors?
2: So I think the reason one of the other reasons that we're very successful is because we acknowledge that if you've seen one warfighter, you've seen one war fighter. There's no everybody is an N of one, everybody is their own experiment in this thing we call life, and there's there is no one size fits all answer. And this is the biggest problem with all of the heavy-handed answers. You know, if you say the D word, you know, I'm depressed, you get Prozac. If I, you say the A word, you know, I'm anxious, you are a Pam, And that is not how humans are put together. Everybody is, is just so different. So what we do is um, we lay out for the warfighters um, who come to our program, well, we, we call it the smorgasbord of um, options that fit in the ra- risk-benefit ratio. So there's benefit without risk. Um, and we just let them know that, you know, you don't have to eat everything on the smorgasbord to have the result you want. Um, but, but here are the things that you can try and that they have to fit into your lifestyle. They have to fit into your personality and your desires. But, um, and they have to fit into what you are looking for in, in an outcome, you know, which is another thing that, you know, we object to about modern mental health is that the idea is that the provider knows what your outcome should be instead of you. Mm-hmm. And so we don't presume to say this is a good outcome. We presume to say what outcome are you looking for and how can we help you get there?
1: Tell me more about how you came to this because presumably you were trained um, as a psychologist and um, the DSM had to be an important part of that. When and how did it change for you?
2: Oh, that's a big question. So um, so I, of course, went to graduate school like everybody else, and like everybody else, um, was indoctrinated, and that is the correct word for that. Um, like other people, social workers, physicians, assistants, medical students, nurses, were all indoctrinated um, it with marketing that is passed off as science when it comes to mental health and psychiatry. Um, and so um, I will, I'll be honest with you, I was at a funeral looking into the... Um, open casket of someone that had 10 days before been um, brought to uh, the Naval Hospital at Roosevelt Roads, Puerto Rico, um, that we had done everything by the book, what we were supposed to do. Um, and yet he was dead, a perfectly healthy mm. human being. And it just made me begin to say, wait a minute, that we have to be doing something wrong here. And that's when I went and started to um, research and be more careful about what I was reading. Um, who paid for what I was reading, um, mm-hmm. and, uh, realized that, um, what I had been presented in graduate school was, was just malarkey. Um, and that this, that really, I think that the thing that made me the, the most motivated and the most angry at that point in time was that, um, the information that I, uh, was reading clearly said that these, uh, especially the suicides were a, predictable outcome. And that literature was published 10 years before I went to graduate school. So the information was there. No one brought it up, not even Not even remotely. It was never mentioned.
1: So that obviously had a huge impact. Where did you go with that information from there? Because now you're within a very <clears throat> um, hierarchical system. And you um, You've been following what everybody has been saying, and now you have a, a different track you want to go down. How did you go from there?
2: So initially, you know, like every you know young officer, you know, I'm, I, I was idealistic, and I thought, you know, my leadership is going to want to know this. Let me tell everybody. Um, mm-hmm. That didn't go well for me. <laughs> so it's part. It's a huge piece of the reason that I transferred to the reserves. Ultimately, was um, because I needed to free myself from that hierarchy so that I could speak truth um, mm-hmm. and follow science instead of um, following directives that were based on um, you know other you know definitely other um, uh, interests than than science mm-hmm. and so, and different um, philosophy. I to the reserves. Sorry?
1: Different philosophy of care.
2: I don't think it's a philosophy of care. I think it's a philosophy of greed. Okay. And um, because there is no care when, when you're, you're supposed to do no harm. And, I mean, this is the bottom line for me. I took an oath to do no harm, and I realized that when I made a referral for medication, which I was required to do or I was being accused of withholding treatment, um, I was harming people, and I was mm-hmm. responsible for their death. I, and at least a couple of occasions, um, wow. and and that you, you just can't do that. You if you do if you're going to do no harm, you need to do no harm. Mm-hmm. So um, once I re- stepped out of that hierarchical model, um, I was able to stop making medication referrals, and I can tell you that I have not made a single medication referral in my private practice um, since at least 2008. I'm very proud of that. Wow. Um, most of the people I. Um, work with, um, it's the absolute opposite. They come to me on med um, and I work very, very hard with them um, mm-hmm. and their uh, providers to get them off. Mm-hmm. Um, and it, it improves their outcomes dramatically.
1: You know, I was thinking, and I, I, Angela, you can correct me, but was it in the um, Medicating Normal uh, movie, or uh, are you calling it just a documentary? Um, somebody had mentioned that there were... Uh, uh, uh people that, as the patients were saying, please help me, you know, get off of these medications that psychologists and psychiatrists were saying, we don't know how to do that. We just add medications. Yes. We don't know how to bring them off. So do you want to speak to that, Angela?
3: Yeah, well, the interesting part is it's echoed <clears throat> in the film by a couple of the experts in the film. So prescribing doctors that had their own awakening process, kind of like Dr. Veaton mm-hmm. has that um recognize, like, wait a minute, we were trained how to put people on medications, but why were we not trained to take them off? Right. So it's echoed in the movie, but the interesting part is we've done a lot of community screenings that are, you know, uh, private and invite-only, but we take a big span of the audience comes from the community. So, like, we know a community member, they invite members of their community, and then those invite other friends, you know. So Mm -hmm. we've had prescribers in the audience literally stand up and cry and say, what Uh. am I doing? Like, I literally was not told anything about this. And how, how am I supposed to give informed consent for medications if I'm not even being given informed consent of what I'm giving my patients? So, you know, some facts are that they don't – doctors, mostly prescribers, don't have time to read all the FDA pamphlets. And even if they do, the FDA pamphlet, in most cases, underplays the amount of serious side effects that can happen. So, like, for me, when I read – the lorazepam pamphlet, it's everything is there. It says withdrawal right. can happen. It says that you can become physi- physiologically dependent in less than nine days. It's there. Ugh. But it, then it wow. says, you know, side effects may include dizziness, you know, electric shock sensations, whatever. Okay. But the dizziness, when you read that, it makes you think, oh, I'll just be a little lightheaded. I might need to watch where I step off of a stair or something. No, the dizziness that I experienced is like, I literally could not walk to the bathroom for months coming off of that medication so you know we there's all these we think we have all these it makes us feel safe that you know the doctor Mm -hmm. knows what he's giving me the pharmacist knows what i'm being prescribed they're doing a check and then the fda knows and they're keeping me safe but it's just not true and it's not in just psychiatry i mean I I even had prescribers in the audience say this is all of medicine it's the same with heart medications that heart medications can cause depression that that heart that beta blockers can actually cause heart attacks Mm-hmm. So, I mean, far and wide, inside and outside the the psychiatric model, there's just, we're not given informed consent, and the, the informed consent that we do get is not even really truthful.
2: So, Dr. Featon, what yeah, I I'm wanna, hearing... I just want to echo that. Yeah, I have, a, I have a, a similar experience because I do a lot of uh, lectures for continuing medical education, and so my entire audience is MDs, and, you know, sometimes they're orthopedics, sometimes they're... Um, you know, just very, very specialized people, and they, of course, prescribe these medications fairly freely. And they are in shock, um, when, when they, I provide them with this is the fully informed consent lecture, this is what you need to know, this is what your, um, you you know, your end user needs to know. They're in shock. They had no idea. So, um, they really don't know. They, um, they're presented with a brochure that suggests that the, the medications are a great alternative. That they're as safe as breakfast cereal. No implications. You know, very rare downsides. Um, and when they see the the actual data, they they are shocked.
1: So what I'm hearing is basically this is the same problem that we've had with the uh, uh, the uh, opioids is that pharma was pushing something that was going to be a moneymaker but not giving the whole truth or, or even maybe any of the truth that goes along with anytime you're giving an unnatural uh, medication. Is that kind of what you're saying? Yeah, it's true, but I also
3: think that they were more, I mean, the government and local leaders were, it's easier to take pain patients more seriously than people with mental health diagnoses. So, I mean, there's there's things in the literature from 40 years ago that there was Kennedy trials at congress about benzodiazepines being dangerous drugs and this is 40 mm-hmm. years ago and they still yep. prescribe them yep. like they're candy so like it's just yep you know it i'm happy that those the opiate stories came out but the psychiatric medications are i think even a bigger problem and there's more people on them it's one in 5 Americans one in 4 women
1: wow
2: yeah, and then to go back to what you said about, or just the, the theme of today of the, the suicide rate, um, you know, it, it's important to be very, very clear that the treatment is causing the suicide rate, not some underlying mental illness. And there's a study that came out November uh, yeah, 2019, where they show that if you're undiagnosed and untreated for any mental illness, the suicide rate is 24.8 per 100,000 and it, and, it, and it gives you different categories. But at the end, it says if you're diagnosed and treated for mental illness, the suicide rate is now 68.2 per 100,000. Wow. Yeah, and most would say
3: that's because mentally ill people will kill themselves. But nobody's questioning, is the treatment right. pushing you over the edge, you know?
2: Right. But, and if, you look at, but if you look at the other categories that they, uh, they talk about in here, you can clearly see that it has nothing to do with, Anything called mental illness um, that we Uh got up there—it's just—it is very, very clear that the—it's the treatment.
1: You know, this rings true for me too because um, I have chronic pain and chronic illnesses uh, that I've dealt with for a long, long time. Um, And what I had to find out on my own, basically, was that um, we still have many resources, Mind Over Matter, there's, uh, you know, mindfulness training, there's all kinds of things that people can do to diminish the uh, impact of some of that pain. I mean, certainly um, there is some pain that's that's imminent. I mean, you've got a broken bone and you're dealing with that. But as it becomes chronic, there are some things to you can do to distract, to um, uh, like I say, diminish that pain, or to uh, do. Um, non-invasive type, type things to um, reduce the, the pain levels. And I found that also to be true in various different things when I was dealing with, with mental um, difficulties to really be able to figure out what worked for me as opposed to what was somebody telling me this is what you have to do. So exactly. I really can relate to what you're saying on many levels, and that's probably what we need to do is step back from pharma, which has gotten greedy and way out of control, and see what else before we go to that. Was Does that make any sense to either
2: of you? Yeah, I, uh, I think it's, I think that's correct. And I think it's also one of the reasons that Warfighter um, got started was because um you know, again, my experience in the military, my experience going to Capitol Hill, my experience talking to lawmakers was that, um, it, you know, you're not going to make any change on that level. It's just there's no motivation to do it. So, um, what we figured was if we can talk to the individual warfighter and get them to have the truth and to stop filling the prescriptions, um, we've saved a warfighter. Um, and running around, right. you know, trying to get um, leadership to do something about this. While I think that is a valuable effort, um, people are dying in the meantime. And, you know, for us, it's just really important to go to the end user and stop the, stop the carnage.
1: Right. Um, are there, I know that you have a, a group in Maryland. Are there people elsewhere in the country that are doing this also? Or are they asking to train with you? Or um, is any of that
2: happening? we're the We are the only program that um, actively takes this this philosophy that there is no mental illness, um, and that we want people to not just get away from the drugs but also get away from the labels. Um, and uh, you know, so we do occasionally have um, requests for people to come and train with us. But the way we solve the problem of um, being in Maryland is that if a if a warfighter signs up for our program and wants to go through it, um, they can sign up and we'll, we'll fly them in um, and provide their ground transportation from uh, anywhere in the United States or any of its territories. So um, it's, we, you know, we've broken down that barrier. We don't have to be everywhere because we'll just bring the people in as they sign up.
1: How, um, how many people are you able to accommodate then, like per we, month we or per year?
2: 20. Mm-hmm. We, we, group, we, we organize groups of 20 um, as we can fund them. And um, each of the, you know, and, and again, because part of it is that there's an intimacy involved and bringing 20 people in at a time, you can create, right. uh, you know, a support unit that, um, you know, also goes forward because support is so important. Because um, again, we're not saying there is no problem when somebody comes back from war; there is a problem. It's a huge problem. It's just not a mental illness problem. <laughs> right. So, you know, so we, we definitely want to bring people in in small enough groups that we can Mm-hmm. Um, you know, develop a means uh, to solve the problem, um, but not, um, again, you know, part of, you know, we're dismantling the one uh, the one situation, which is you're not mentally ill, but then we have to say, well, if you're not mentally ill, what are you going to do about this problem? And so right. it becomes a training evolution. That's what we call it. It's, it's training. And we train in groups of 20, basically, because there's a, a, a possibility for intimacy in that group.
1: Are there families involved in
2: any way? Uh, yes and no. Um, I mean, we don't bring the family in for training. We do provide um, information uh, for the uh, individuals to take home and provide to their family. And, mm-hmm. um, you know, where possible, uh, you know, obviously we're going to help to educate them in any way that we can. Um mm-hmm. but yeah it's it's a difficult situation because the family is also used to this idea that my family member is mentally ill, and when the right. person comes home and announces that they're not mentally ill, everybody's kind <laughs> of in shock, you know yeah um,
1: it's but, like oh oh now we so really we have a problem
2: some, yeah really, but we do we do try to provide what we can for um for that, and we provide you know what the warfighter needs when they go home to have that discussion with their family. But it's it's not an unfamiliar thing when somebody goes, um, you know, to a, a program and stops drinking. Um, they come home, and and the family's also out of whack because you know their drinker isn't drinking anymore. So there's a huge adjustment, but um, right. it's an important adjustment.
1: Yes, it it um, it makes perfect sense, and uh, you know it brings it into the whole web of. You know, the the false information that even the lay people have and the um, the families that are at home somehow holding on to that diagnosis and saying, well, he's acting this way because of this mental illness, rather than trying to figure out who is this whole person um Partly, I knew that person before, and partly, this person has changed in some way. And how do I get back to really understanding who is this whole person? So that holistic, you know, medicine that we're supposed to be doing so well—is there any kind of corollary uh, um, type of group in uh, out in you know normal um, population that is somewhat similar, or looking at this type of uh, training as a as a way to go?
2: Uh, well, so far I, I have,
3: have not seen film, anything. I just go ahead. Oh, I was just going to say on the film's website, we do have a list of alternatives and resources and a reading list. So on com, you can find all that stuff, but there's, you know, other people that are critically thinking about, um, all things, mental health in different ways through podcasts right. or books right. or programs like right. Naries, things like that.
1: Great. Is there any way for people to watch the film other than when you're traveling around?
3: Bye. <laughs> Well, right now we're on pause because of the film festivals that we've all gotten into are are kind of on hold because of the coronavirus. So, right now you can watch about 100 clips that are outtakes from the film and the trailer on our YouTube channel. So, if you just go on YouTube and search for "Medicating Normal" documentary, it should pop right back right up. Or you can access it through our website. So for now, you can't watch the film in its entirety because they're shopping for a distributor that gets widespread audiences on you know like public television or cable a cable network right. so right, right now we're just kind of on pause and, and until the film festivals and community screenings are able to pick back up the private okay. screenings then right now it's just kind of the youtube channels all we have and the website
1: okay and dr feetin um do you have any input either of what's going on in the lay organizations
2: no in fact um what what angie said is is exactly right there's a lot out there i don't think anyone is doing it as a as a, you know, a week-long training seminar the way that we are, but that doesn't mean that the information isn't out there um, and that people can't um, inform themselves, which I think is it's just a, a huge responsibility to do that. And, and I don't think people know, um, they just don't know that they have any um, informing to do. You know, when, mm-hmm. when somebody comes into my office and they say, you know, uh, they... Uh, Got, got the flu, got Tamiflu, and two weeks later they were a psychiatric patient, they don't huh. seem to realize that there's a connection between those two things. And they certainly never read the package insert. Wow. And when you, you know, you pull it up online and read it to them. They're, are you kidding me? <laughs> you know, same thing huh. again with the cardiac medications and the same thing with the, the statins. People think they're harmless. And they're, they're all wonder drugs that are absolutely harmless, and they don't realize that when you... You may attack one thing in your body successfully, but you push every other system out of whack. And wow. you know, and again, I'm not saying you shouldn't do that. I'm saying you should um, have the opportunity to know that that's the case and make make an informed decision. Right. Well,
3: and I'm that's the
1: whole.
3: My, if I can go ahead, just, uh, go ahead Angela. Through, through my. Through my mental health care treatment, um, I had all these strange symptoms, you know, dizziness, migraines, tachycardia, fainting spells. Um, there were times like like vertigo that was so bad I couldn't get out of bed. But instead of thinking critically about, well, let's look at the combination of medications that you're on. Let's check drug interactions. Let's read the warnings. Let's see if, you know, maybe something could be taken away. It was always something else was added, so there's a, a point right. in the film where uh, one of the experts says, you know, a lot of a lot of providers think like the more medications, the more effective it, the treatment will be, but really, the more medications could add up to like disastrous consequences, especially like in the elderly and children, you know. But for me, it was it was always evidence of a physical or mental disorder instead of a, an effect of the medication. So not, you know. I know most of the people listening are nurses so it's always something to look out for and to be educated about and to ask the question like is less more instead of adding another and another right. and another and the next thing you know you have a polypharmacy nightmare like me and it took me 10 years to get off of everything with very little help
1: which is exactly what we're having with the elderly and a number of other people yeah. too where they just keep adding medications that can cause all of these different things diarrhea and etc cetera, etc cetera, and uh, really, just compounding the person's problem. Uh, and, so, I
3: mean, well, and one last thing is just the, the the how that deals with the healthcare system. I was going for MRIs, for gas, you know, uh, colonoscopies. Like, I was given all of these tests, millions of right. dollars worth of tests, that absolutely had not zero results. You know, other than right. a little bit of migraine or a little, you know, so all this disability and Medicare spending, the health care costs, I mean, all of that was expounded because the providers never asked the question, could the medication be causing this? That wow. was never discussed or asked or questioned.
1: Is there anything else, Angela, that you would like really want to make sure that people understand? And this is nurses and all types of healthcare providers that are listeners, um, even administrators of healthcare, all kinds of different people connected to healthcare. What is the number one most important thing you want them to get and understand?
3: I think that um, people have suffering. They have problems of living that are legitimate, but there are reasons behind those symptoms. And the symptoms are the way that our body talks to us and says like, you know, I'm having anxiety because I'm in a toxic relationship. I, you know, I'm skipping school because my parents are not paying attention to me. There's reasons for our behaviors and quote unquote symptoms. Those are things to be like looked into. But when we label somebody and we diagnose them and give them a medication, we fail to see the reasons behind the behaviors and the symptoms. So I think we need to take a step back as a, you know, health community and really like humble ourselves and to start asking the deeper questions like what's going on with the person's life? Let's just listen to them. Those little things mm-hmm. are what has saved me, not the medications and all the lettered therapies. You know, I, I this might sound radical but I, I think even all these letter therapies that claim to be evidence based are, are like getting in the way of our us seeing a fellow human being that's suffering. We just mm-hmm. need to focus on the suffering, not all these magical diagnoses and science and about, you know, claim to be evidence-based for who. Who are they evidence-based for?
1: Yeah. Dr. Fieten, is there one thing you want to make sure that the uh, listening audience gets?
2: Uh, yeah, I actually w- would like to piggyback on um, what Angie said, because I think it's the most important thing here, is that, um, you know, as, as harmful as all these heavy-handed treatments, with the drugs and ECT and ganglion blocks and all of these things, that I just, uh, there's horrible. Um, but more importantly is that they are, being, they are being offered as treatments for things that are not, in fact, medical problems. They're not illnesses. The Diagnostic and Statistics Manual has been rejected by the National Institutes of Mental Health um, as being an unreliable and invalid document. Um, they they clearly say that it um, it's just a catalog of life problems, of suffering, of emotional responses, of normal human variation. Even things like um, autism, that as unpleasant as it is to have a child on that spectrum, everything on that spectrum is part of the normal range of human variation. Um, it becomes pathology when um, you know when the psychiatry people put it in that book and say you can't be like this. Mm-hmm. Um, and then what happens is they, they make the cutoffs label people, um, and I think recently there was a, an article that came out that said labels belong on jars, not on people. <laughs> um, yeah, people are what people are what they are, and once you've labeled them, you create you you literally that's the point at which the person becomes mentally ill. They weren't until they got that label, um, and and right. there there is no mental illness. You know, again, it's unreliable. It's an invalid document. So, and we're drugging people for something that is unva- invalid and unreliable, and that is all part of normal human variation. So We've
1: become come to the amazing. end of our show, and, and I hate to say it, but I am so grateful that both of you have come on and been able to speak so forthrightly. Um, these are things that mirror also the things that I am worried about, and I know there have to be many, many, many other people in the country and around the world that have these same concerns. So I do have to say goodbye. This is Once a Nurse, Always a Nurse, Exploring the World of Nursing. I am Leanne Meyer. Uh, do visit me on my website. which is www.onceanurse.com you can read I have a blog, a newsletter try to put in a few general notes about the world Um, and you can also contact me if you have ideas for either speakers and or topics at um, Leanne at onceanurse.com so until next week thank you so very much for listening and thank you both for coming
0: on